He's a loud, abrasive drunk, pees on people, lights things on fire, and appears to have zero regard for safety, authority, or anyone's emotions other than his own. This was my perception of Steve Crandall. Shit, it was everyone's perception because it was true. If not a first-hand witness, we all saw it on VHS. As I got to know him, it became obvious that he was a really good human being beneath the trademark glasses, tattoos, black t-shirt, and white pants uniform. Sensitive, even. Really likable when he wasn't being an asshole. A turning point in our friendship came when he was lying in a Vegas hotel room surrounded by friends as if he were in a hospital bed, except the grave illness was that he was still hungover from the previous night at almost 7 p.m. and naked beneath the blanket. Why he had it with him in bed, I'll never know, but he was talking about the new FBM race sprocket sample he had in his hand. He identified me as the only one in the room who might appreciate a racing-specific part and handed me the cog, saying, You'd probably use that, right? BMX to the core, no matter his condition. The sprocket gift was a long time ago, and the guy has evolved. Maturity is an offensive term to the likes of Steve, but the dude has grown and become greater than the sum of his parts. FBM, Steve's BMX company for over 25 years, is still going somehow. Though there are others involved, FBM is Crandall, Crandall is FBM. What's one without the other? I know he struggles with this identity crisis, but he's become his own man outside the realm of FBM. A rogue artist. Crandall was always an artist. The first FBM product was his art on a t-shirt. And a writer? Dude's been writing the whole time. He just got better at it as the miles added up, the stories accumulated, and his vision broadened. Refined like a fine wine, except he doesn't drink anymore. Who could have pictured Crandall as a boring adult? Don't, because he's not. He lives in a damn school bus, alternates his beverages between black coffee and mineral water from Mexico. He eats food prepared by the same fire that provides his warmth at night. He rides bikes in the woods and travels the world announcing events and just being himself. He literally gets paid to yell at people while they ride their bikes. An enviable lifestyle to those held captive by 9 to 5 lives and a mortgage. He's lost money, he's lost time, and he's lost good friends, but he's never lost his spirit. A bus-driving sage. Crandall is almost a religious figure. The temple of the Cran man. These are his scriptures. This first story is called P-38. I looked down at my hands, calloused, dirty, and holding a brass loop keychain with a spark plug gapper, can opener, and a few random keys. No idea what the keys were for, maybe my folks' place back home and the house on Fairfield, although I never remember locking the door. I would this time, however. No telling when we'd be back home. I had never driven so far in my life, wobbling and weaving with bald tires between the ruts on the highway from over-frightened semis. I was on Interstate 40, somewhere between Laguna Pueblo and the Zuni Reservation in New Mexico, before the sun would start making its face known to the rear view. Barely awake, speeding across America, listening to the rhythm of the seamed pavement as it interrupted the half-sleep of my two traveling partners, and the jangled racket of a jam-packed beater car. I had saved up enough money for the trip working second shift at a plastic injection molding plant. I got the job through a temp agency making minimum wage. Late autumn evenings, standing around in low-top vans on a concrete floor, separating and sorting plastic parts not unlike the pieces of a model car when you remove it from the box. I worked with older women. They were sassy and loud, 
and made lighthearted jokes about me being a young white man. Together, four or five of us would take warm plastic pieces out of a press, snap and sort, working around a table. The women gossiped like they were at a hair salon or a sewing circle. They were great. I was merely a bystander. I must not have worked there very long, because back then everything was cheap. Gas was under a dollar a gallon, and split three ways would end up costing $30 each to get across the country. Three of us, three bikes, our gear, and a couple of cassette tapes all piled into a 1980 Datsun Sentra hatchback with worn-out tires, bad shocks, and what we would learn, a tired battery and an alternator on its way out. It was a winter drive, crossing state lines on Interstate 70, through cities like Terre Haute, the home of Larry Bird, St. Louis, down I-44 into Oklahoma, eventually onto 40, through Amarillo, Albuquerque, Flagstaff, and eventually Barstow, a dusty town where 40 ends and I-15 takes you into Southern California. The drive was a marathon run for the sun, taking shifts, the backseat passenger nestled between bikes with the front tires removed, resting on a stack of backpacks and sleeping bags, head leaned against a window, nodding off and waking up with each bump in the highway, each pothole a myoclonic jerk, suspended animation, a sleep-deprived trance of bad suspension, rutted roads, and the 13th consecutive loop of naked ray guns understand. Do you understand? Up front, the driver and navigator would trade stories, sort through the road atlas and stepped on magazines, fiddle with the radio, count the mile markers, and shoot the shit. Next shift's driver would pretend to catch some Zs, while whoever sat shotgun keeps an eye out for highway patrol. Passing time watching convoys of trucks driven by maniacs on speed, the same creepy degenerates that write on the walls of truck stop bathroom stalls, the same dudes that litter the highway with half-full bottles of piss. You wonder who would do such a thing until it's 5 a.m. in New Mexico, and you just drank three Pepsis within 100 miles to stay awake. The state trooper pulling us over at dawn would soon find the same kind of bottles under the front seats. Disgusted, he doesn't acknowledge the fact that we at least had the decency not to litter. At the next gas stop, we recounted our run-ins with the law, likely eating uncooked canned food with road trip bread that had inadvertently smushed into the shape of a spork. I hadn't realized it, but the can opener on the keychain that my father had given me the year before when I had left the nest had proven to be quite the lifesaver when it came to non-perishable food items on the go. I remember my pops taking his P-38 off his own keychain and gifting it to me. I had no idea the simplicity and practicality of this gesture would come to symbolize such a rite of passage. When he was my age, he used the same thing as he shipped from the West Coast to Southeast Asia. A simple tool for survival, issued by the U.S. Armed Forces, designed for opening a sea ration. Tough and dependable. Named either for its length, 38 millimeters, or how it punctures 38 times to open most cans. Either way, the budget meals cooked on a radiator, or in the coals of a campfire, or in this case, cold with the most dense parts at the bottom of the can, broken up by tapping the bottom of it on the curb we sat on. Like my father, the P-38 and its understated useful nature and functionality would end up playing a key role in my travel life. Once we made it to the coast, we stocked up on supermarket essentials and explored towns we'd never heard of. La Mirada, Garden Grove, Fullerton, Tustin, 
eventually making our way to the Pacific Ocean by way of Huntington Beach. A media blitz of seaside imagery, seen all of our youth in magazines and movies, now in real life, while ordering regionally franchised tacos off the dollar menu. My first foray into California dreaming was spent half passed out on a bathroom floor, closer to the Inland Empire. A victim of fast food poisoning, blurry vision sickness, and regret. A harsh welcome to reality from a fantasy created in my high school reverie. Whether it's just economics or superstition, eating out was mostly off the menu. Here I was in the land of golden sunshine, rolling out the red carpet to what would become a couple weeks of no-frills supermarket bargains. Canned food opened one puncture at a time, in 38 motions, around its sealed seam circumference. This next story is called Oasis. My first time going to Kuwait put me there over Easter. Something near the cradle of civilization. Mesopotamia, or whatever you want to call it. The land between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, emptying into the Persian Gulf. It was windy, hot, and like no other place I'd been before, except maybe Salton Sea or a truck stop outside El Paso after a windstorm. I'd gotten a call from Rooftop a month or two earlier, letting me know there might be an opening on a trip to visit troops overseas and asked if I'd be interested. The dates were pretty close to another trip to Spain that I had already planned, and the lease on my place was up. I weighed my options and accepted the offer. I'd be gone over a month, so I let go of my apartment and packed up everything I owned into boxes. When I would return, I'd be living in and out of my school bus, I was up for some pretty dramatic changes, on top of a trip like nothing I had ever experienced before. I was excited at the idea of everything. I was also quietly hoping I was cut out for it. Flying across oceans and continents to the land of oil and sand, I arrived in Kuwait City, three flights and 30 hours after leaving the States. I was greeted by a security team of ex-Special Forces, Americans living in a foreign land, hired to escort the group I was with safely from point A to point B. They were hardened veterans who almost wore humble smiles, faded ranger tattoos, civilian clothes, and earpieces and communication devices. They say we could be considered soft targets. I think they were messing with me. And that the journey from the airport to Camp John was likely the most dangerous part of our stay. And not because of an insurgency or terrorists, but because the locals drive like maniacs and are known to get in pretty wild car accidents. I wasn't sure what to make of it all. It hadn't occurred to me we'd need security when I accepted the invitation, especially the same dudes who protect DV-6, a.k.a. high-level distinguished visitors, a.k.a. the U.S. military generals. Being on base was surreal. We wandered around, jet-lagged, to a commander's call to start the day. There we would learn the basics regarding where we were and how things worked. Kuwait was really far from the world I lived in on so many levels. Totally fried and wide-eyed, I had no real idea what to expect. It was a huge operation. At least to me it seemed that way. Serving as the forward logistics base for the entire region. It also had a coffee spot that served the Moac, the mother of all coffees which is like high-octane truck stop coffee with four shots of espresso. And there was a Taco Bell fashioned out of a Connex shipping container. 
I was in the Middle East as a part of a group bringing entertainment to Americans deployed in a conflict zone. Part of that was in the form of shows, but most of it was meeting soldiers, airmen, sailors, and so forth. Men and women from every walk of life. Their duties handling every detail imaginable to keep this kind of operation in motion. Oftentimes, we just listened as people told us their stories, where they were from, what was waiting for them back home, and how long they'd been here, and how long till they left. We spent the week traveling from Arafjan around Kuwait to various bases, some within just a few miles of Iraq. We were escorted anywhere we went by the security detail, and our convoy was usually a few cars deep. Traveling north, passing oil fields, and a dusty bunch of not much else on the left, the Persian Gulf, Kuwait Bay, and Kuwait City. It was like eager sightseeing without much to look at. As we got further from city limits, the amount of debris and post-war junk increased. One of the men from our security detail pointed to a section of the water, and to all of its flotsam and jetsam, and told us the tale of remnants of the first Gulf War essentially being bulldozed into the sea. As we traveled further inland, looking left, I gazed on the horizon to wire fences, power lines running parallel to our path, some temporary structures and tents, and a caravan of camels. It was unassuring and underwhelming at best, minus the random dumpster, burned-out vehicle, or pack of wild dogs. Getting closer to an Air Force base, there would be helicopters circling above the wind-blown dust that seemed to be intermittently endless. The base we were headed to was owned by the Kuwaiti government, with the United States Air Force and the U.S. Marines running operations against the proto-state of fundamentalists that were destabilizing the region. We arrived and saw even more remnants of the first Gulf War. Bombed-out bunkers sitting like some dusty reminder of the Iraqi invasion. Only 20-some-odd miles from the Iraqi border, they called it the Rock. To my best estimation, a lot of what I was seeing in the headlines in other parts of the same region started out here. On a quick tourist walkabout, we were shown by a soldier pointing a few hundred yards away where Iraqi troops hung a Kuwaiti general, his remaining soldiers shot. The building, bullet holes and all, sat there unused. Regardless of politics, policy, and social conventions, we met men and women from the most far-reaching corners of the Americana and beyond, all types, all colors, creeds, shapes, and sizes. We talked about anything and everything, from daily responsibilities, the monotony of some of it, and all things in between. We saw everything from dogs that bite, to robots that disarm bombs, to chow halls and pool halls, the basics of a quick reactionary force, the base fire department, the control tower, the underground tunnels that connect various posts, headquarters, or who knows what. Back on the road, it was more of the same. Although two of the vehicles from our convoy were totaled in a wreck during a windstorm when a water truck making a delivery to one of the bases could not see them at a turn, and all hell broke loose. Two of the guys I was with were in one of the vehicles. They were hurt, but not seriously. Camels being raised by a nearby Bedouin tribe were the only witnesses. They walked by unconcerned. We would spend another week in the conflict zone, surrounded mostly by vast nothingness and uncertainty, 
juxtaposed by people who are the most hospitable, genuine, caring, and appreciative. The duality of it all was subtle but striking. A world away from everything I knew, a real lesson in humility and sharing. On our way out of the country, the men on security detail suggested that if anybody hits a camel with a vehicle, to just keep going straight to the airport, because the trouble wouldn't be worth waiting around for. The first time I went to Las Vegas was in the mid-90s. I was 21 years old and semi-stranded in Huntington Beach, California, in wintertime, at the infamous HB House. A friend named Comcast was moving west and had offered to buy me a ticket back home to Indiana if I helped him drive across the country. The journey west in the cold months was drab and dull. Peering at the horizon through a windshield down Interstate 40, everything was like a grayscale painting. When we got to California, he let me know he was out of money. The crew that I was couch surfing with in Huntington Beach was a wild bunch of partygoers, and amidst a weekend bender, it was decided that we'd road trip to Sin City a few hours east. If we left soon, the night would still be going by the time we arrived. Quite a few of us packed into a mid-80s Toyota single-cab pickup truck. Three up front, and a few in the bed, under a cap, with beers, gear, and a well-known bike rider of the time smoking speed out of a tinfoil and glass contraption. He would hold an index finger to his lips, gesturing for me to keep it a secret before exhaling. I was so naive I wasn't even sure what was being smoked, let alone how outrageous my entire situation would end up being, thousands of miles from home, all but broke, with no real plan. I think a pattern was forming. Wandering around Las Vegas, we arrived at the same time as the grand opening of a new casino fashioned to look like a tiny New York City, with small skyscrapers and a miniature Statue of Liberty. I was now possibly in the weirdest desert in the world. Making the rounds, everything was vivid, electric, noisy, and full of energy. Everything seemed alive. Flashing lights, loudspeakers, pamphleteers, Tourists of all ages, mothers, grandmothers, entire families, all in one of the most rapidly growing cities in the United States. The people who walked by us were adults dressed like kindergartners, donning plastic jewelry, novelty visors made of tinted plastic, wearing sunglasses indoors, and holding refillable drink containers filled with booze. Amidst an endless sea of tourism and gamblers, all in at least as much of a haze as anyone I was with, we ended up at a craps table. Rolling bones across from us was a well-dressed man with a bodyguard, groupies, and various random people staring. One of the guys I was with started saying, Hey, it's the singer from Soundgarden. He and his entourage were not stoked, to which a man with a lisp proclaims, somewhat annoyed, It's not Soundgarden, it's Metallica. We were playing craps with Kurt Hammock. He had his hair cut short, nicely manicured facial hair, and would be playing the grand opening that evening with the rest of his bandmates. Making our way after midnight to a sprawling semi-suburban desert neighborhood on the outskirts of Las Vegas, we discovered a stark contrast to the welcome of the high-wattage nightlife of the Strip. The only thing that seemed pretty well lit were our new friends that welcomed us to their dim post-party luminescence. Here, people gathered around a hand-me-down TV and VCR, watching the recorded broadcast of some cable news. The scoop revealed a dead body found hogtied in a spare bedroom of a beat-up neighborhood home. The newscaster, in front of a familiar-looking house, was in the forefront 
as a young man got undressed in the far right corner of the background. Total hijinks. Turns out the prankster was also our host, and the house being reported in the news was the one we were staying at. The dead body was the girlfriend of an estranged roommate they hadn't seen in a while. To just about anyone, this news would be shocking. I know I was startled. And when asked how long ago this happened, we were curious how many months had gone by since the tragedy. The response was, like 8 p.m. The news trucks just left a couple hours ago. That night I stayed in the back of the pickup truck in the front yard. If I had slept at all, it wasn't much. I had been in the desert for a couple days, feeling sort of lost, tired, and uncertain, so I called my father. After some small talk, I said, Well, Pops, I stayed at a place where they found a dead body last night. It kind of weirded me out. He paused, like he was either half listening or didn't really think I was being serious, and said, That's kid stuff, alluding to all the craziness he must have seen in his younger days. He concluded, however, with, Don't tell your mother, and... Make sure you get home safe. In just a few words, he reaffirmed he was listening and understood, but also knew I'd be fine. A bloody car was found in the desert soon after this, empty and abandoned. It belonged to the mysterious roommate from the house we stayed at. Eventually, we were back on the road. Behind us, one of the most depraved, manufactured absurdities I had ever witnessed, Las Vegas and many of the people who passed through it. I was glad to see it fade off in the distance, through the tinted glass cap, while I sat in the bed of a pickup truck headed west. Uh, This next story is a short one. It's called Places I've Slept. You can sleep where you fall, and you can drink yourself a room at a five-star hotel. These are some places I've slept, either by choice or by chance. After another long drive... I've slept in the dugout of a Little League baseball field in the middle of America. In an abandoned semi-trailer in an otherwise empty parking lot in Kansas City. In a cave in eastern Kentucky. A hammock in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. An alleyway in Austin, Texas. And on a couch in the back of a moving truck in Center City, Philadelphia. After a long flight and suffering some version of jet lag... I've managed to get some shut-eye on a stranger's balcony in the south of France, in a rainforest in Puerto Rico, in the red-light district of Montreal, and one in London, too. I fell asleep in a manger in Italy, a train station in Amsterdam, an old hotel in Hastings, a hostel in Rotterdam, on a concrete slab in the outback, in a bowl in Brussels, under a picnic table at a rest stop, in the Audubon, above the city lights in Shinjuku, a connex in Kuwait City, and one in Djibouti, on a double-decker bus in Berlin, in a chalet in Palavas, under full moon on a beach near Wolguga, and on the airplane heading home, the back of a van or a car, anywhere in the States, on a porch in Virginia, in a lean-to in upstate New York, in a swamp in Sturbridge, a five-star hotel in the inner harbor of Baltimore, a filthy industrial warehouse in Fort Wayne, Indiana, a buoy tender in New York City, next to a motorcycle on the Currituck Sound, in a graffiti-covered school bus in New Orleans, in a tent in the rain, in a puddle in Ikea Pines, in a Conaline van in someone's yard in Richford, 
a Midwest park bench, and any couch at a friend's place in between. Sometimes things don't go as planned, and I've ended up sleeping in places like an emergency room in Davenport, using an empty single-serving Cheerios box as a pillow in a drunk tank in Ohio, some stranger's yard in Nebraska, in a grass lot across the street from the police station in Florence, Kentucky, violent offender general population in Athens, Georgia, in a surgery recovery room in Seattle, and cell block D in Franklin County. Other times, just tired from the ride, I've slept in places like an abandoned boatyard in Plymouth, Massachusetts, behind the check-in desk at Newark International Airport, in a resort in Huntington Beach, Bocephus's old tour bus, a cold tile floor in Dallas, a trampoline in Orlando, an old shoe factory in Johnson City, a Motel 6 in East Memphis, Gary, Indiana, Fresno, and Canandaigua. I fell asleep once in one of Elvis's old dojos in Memphis, a farmer's yard in Indiana, a closet in Toledo, Ohio, an old funeral home in Rahway, an Airbnb on the New River outside a pickle factory in East Williamsburg, Brooklyn, a weed farm in Northern California, and across the street from an old folks' home in Ithaca. Most recently, I parked my 25-year-old international school bus behind a house in Richmond, Virginia, across an alley from Forest View Graveyard, an abandoned slave cemetery. This is where I currently call home, falling asleep to the sounds of random gunfire, crickets, and passing trains, and waking up to the birds chirping all at once while a chorus of cicadas falls from harmony into unison. It's all been a long trip from my parents' basement to where I lay my head and call home these days. So, it looks like there's about, there's four more stories, and there's also a preface and an intro. Uh, So I'm not going to read all of them, but there's one that as I was kind of scrolling through the book, I saw the title of the uh, the next story I'm going to read. It's called Road Fools. And I thought it was fair that I shared this story with everybody listening. Uh, because, you know, Road Fools is just so close to all of our hearts. So I'm going to read that one. And I'm going to save the rest for hopefully you. Uh, hopefully this inspires you to go buy the book. Maybe go travel. See the world. Or just do something creative. So we'll do this last story and then uh, we'll call it. Thanks a lot for listening and thanks again, Crandall. I appreciate this. When we set out, we were kids. Nobodies. Maybe 23 years old. Living upstate New York. There was three of us, once again. Packed up in an unassuming sedan. All of our gear and our bikes aiming west. This trip would be different, however. It was a catalyst in our lives, in our world, and we almost knew it. Mike, Greg, and I bounced along the New York State Thruway, past Erie, stopping briefly in Cleveland along the way, passing through each flat industrial town on I-90, through northern Ohio, Elkhart, South Bend, Gary, and eventually, almost 700 miles later, to Chicago, where this journey really starts. Our friends Marco and Chris had just bought the USS Constellation, Hank Jr.'s old tour bus, and thought it would be a good idea to span the continent with 15 maniacs, with a marquee that read, Let's Get Rowdy. Aside from the two guys at the lead, 
Joining this excursion would be a wise guy named Jeff, who helped out with driving, and a dozen pro BMX riders, some up-and-comers, some already full swing into the cementing legend status, as well as my friends and I. In Chicago, we met up with Joe Rich, Robbie Morales, Jimmy Levan, Sandy Carson, Rooftop, Brian Castillo. Later, we would meet up with Lee Ramsdale, Mike Ardeline, and Leland Thurman. Greg Walsh, Mike Tag, and I showed up on the scene like freshmen on the first day. Loading up the tour bus with our gear, our minds quickly melded into characters who we imagined living as outlaws on the road, whiskey bent and hellbound. But instead of fast women, drugs, and booze, we had bikes, wigs, boundless energy, costumes, cameras, and almost 2,000 miles ahead of us to the coast. It would be the kind of road trip where you handcuff yourself to the people you are traveling with and electrocute them, drink grain alcohol, spit fire, argue, cuss and fight, all while laughing the entire time. Once in motion, it was the long haul. Out of the Windy City, into Iowa, truck stop antics along Interstate 80, Des Moines, Omaha, Cheyenne, Laramie, due north of Medicine Bow, half strangers in close quarters for too many miles at a pinch, taking the long way to becoming lifelong friends. A vastly documented experience in impundent adolescent enthusiasm, uncertainty, and coming-of-age talent. We had a plan, some kind of halfway nonchalant purpose, inexperienced and possibly overconfident but eagerly willing to give it a go, through Little America, Fort Bridger, and eventually our first stop, Salt Lake City, Utah. We were already almost four days on the road, another 14 miles, and we hadn't even started yet. For most of us, it would be almost 18 days on the road, a life-changing escapade in constant motion, burning nearly 2,000 gallons of diesel, going thousands of miles, sleeping at roadside motels, in the bus, and who knows where else. My story would end differently, but I'll get to that later. The bus itself was a sight to behold, an early 80s Silver Eagle, painted to look like drug and alcohol abuse on wheels. Outlaw country passing through the same place as Bob Seger wrote about in Turn the Page. Yet here we are channeling Bocephus, and when we walked into a restaurant, strung out from the road, the eyes were upon us because we were loud, wore costumes, and knocked things over. Very much did dare to take a stand, even when locals said things like, Tell that little boy with the funny hair to be careful. Through Salt Lake, Kimball, Reno, and so on. We were following the sun out west of California. From there, it was another 750 miles onto San Francisco, an old city with a wild history. We showed up with California stars in our eyes. After spanning the entire continent, we rolled up to one of the most densely populated cities in the United States. With its rolling hills, cable cars, amazing views, and most notably, pigeons. So many pigeons. We found bus parking at a rock and roll hotel in the tenderloin called the Phoenix and dispersed in wide-eyed wonderment on the city streets. It wasn't quite like the TV sitcoms of that era. No one waved at us while squatting in the doorway shooting dope or going to the bathroom. This was the underbelly of one of America's greatest cities. The ground was littered with needles, trash, and worse. 
We walked around looking at aqua blue piles of broken automotive window glass where cars had been parked, being solicited by people living rough under scaffolding or in alleyways. It was daylight, late summer, but it felt cold and dark. In tourist mode, we were treated to all the sights, smells, and sounds of a big city, including a live music performance in an old warehouse by Ron Wilkerson. We witnessed the melting pot of various cultures, participated in random tomfoolery, along with plenty of hill climbs, hill bombs, and two-wheeled fun on our bicycles before heading back to the Phoenix Hotel. There, our rooms had balconies overlooking a swimming pool, and below they had set up the grounds for a high-society party of San Fran socialites that included the mayor, important folk, beautiful women, and us. They looked at the bus and asked what band we were in. Well, we drank all the free beers we could and ate all the complimentary food. We wore wigs, costumes, danced and howled until eventually Jimmy rode his bike off the second-story roof into the swimming pool. We had been on the road for seven days so far. I don't think we knew how good we had it. Headed north, sitting for hours on end. I'd switch sides of the bus, staring out at the subtle changes of the landscape at 65 miles an hour as we roared through parts of the country I'd never been to. Places like Red Bluff, Hawkinsville, Hornbrook, Grants Pass, Three Pines, and so on. Long drive daydreams in between gazes into the wooded roadside blur, mountain views, blue-green lakes. We talked shop, cracked jokes, and busted chops. At truck stops, we would buy beer and chug as many as we could before getting back into the rig. Drinking wasn't allowed on the bus, which makes sense, since someone had already broken a window, and it was the maiden voyage. This, however, was an old outlaw bus, and we couldn't follow the rules. Sorry, Marco. Miles and miles of killing time, sneaking a pinch off some grain alcohol we got in our hands on to blow fire, and before you know it, people are getting handcuffed, electrocuted, huffing gas out of a whipped cream canister, and wearing wigs, spray-painted cowboy hats, and thrift store costumes. It almost sounds bizarre as I recount it. Another 650 miles or so, and we landed in Portland, Oregon. Waking up early in an expensive, cheap motel, we scoured the city at daybreak for what would be the most productive and breakthrough days of the trip. Tons of riding, hijinks, and city exploration. I'd never been to many of these places. Portland was so curious straddling the banks of the Willamette River. We dwelled underneath the Burnside Bridge, thankful to not fall down on the ground covered in years of pigeon shit and needle debris. Afterwards, we heard stories of people contracting hepatitis at that spot even without intravenous drug use. The Rose City was wild. Mike was in full bloom by now. My childhood best friend was on pace with some of the best in the game. The energy was starting to percolate on every level. Ironically, we were placed above an extinct volcanic field, known as the Boring Lava Field. We were ten days into this traveling circus when Mike had caught Lee on fire, accidentally spitting a flaming ball into his face and singeing his eyebrows. No joke, it was a stop, drop, and roll scenario. Breathing fire and narrowly escaping catastrophe was becoming a kind of a metaphor for this adventure. The sun set under a dead moon. We knew it was time to keep moving onward and upward. Time to head north, across the Columbia River into Washington, through Castle Rock, Olympia, P. 
Puyallup toward the Puget Sound. Once we hit Seattle, a relatively short haul of about 175 miles, we had driven just shy of a total of 4,000 miles. And you can guess what a dozen or so strong personalities in tight quarters for long hours would yield. Plenty of inside jokes, discord, and restlessness needing an outlet. Portland was a reset in many ways. More fun than is probably legal. But time on the road had worn us through in many ways. Nonetheless, we wandered another West Coast city amidst passing showers and looming rainstorms. Twelve days in, a busy afternoon turned into another wild nightlife scene in an unfamiliar metropolitan universe, far from what most of us were used to. It was a hot night, summer in the city, and the hairs on the back of our necks stood up. All around us, people looking half dead as we looked everywhere for excitement, running up the stairs, gonna meet you at the rooftop. At night, it was a different world. Strangely enough, the days were like the nights on this trip. We explored the architecture Seattle had to offer and how the city sat on steep grades with places called Capitol Hill, Magnolia, Beacon Hill, and the world-famous city skyline with its Space Needle. Rain City lived up to its name, and we found refuge under the Aurora Bridge to avoid the storm, where we found kinship with the Fremont Troll, a legendary sculpture none of us had ever heard of. It was a 20-foot-tall troll under a bridge, with a dozen howling lunatics climbing it like children of the damned on their first recess. Seattle showed the trip its second skin. It was wild and maybe proved to be just a little too much, like another shot of whiskey. The following day, amidst an otherwise good time, riding bikes, documenting our pilgrimage out of oblivion into a brave new world. Jimmy had crashed on his head and had gone into convulsions. It was a scary moment for everyone, almost in some kind of cosmic alignment of weird karma. I too crashed pretty hard. Slippery bricks from the rainy weather at Red Square by the University of Washington. Normally it wouldn't have been much more than feeling bruised and battered, which we had all grown up being used to at this point. But a twist of fate caused me to land funny and totally destroy my elbow. Come to find out this plaza is notoriously slippery during this kind of weather. I wasn't sure how bad I was hurt. I knew something wasn't right because I couldn't move my arm properly or straighten it out. Maybe I dislocated it? Who knows? I ended up walking myself nearly two miles to the nearest hospital. This was before smartphones. I had asked a police officer who sort of just nodded and pointed to the University Medical Center where I sat in the ER for several more hours. After getting x-rayed, it was finally discovered that I had shattered my elbow, breaking the radial head clean off the top of the bone, the knobby end where the radius meets the elbow. I would estimate about eight hours had gone by at this point, and I was pretty uncomfortable uncertain, and really far from home. I'd been hoping it'd be something simple and relatively easy to fix, like a dislocation. But it turns out it was a worst-case scenario, or something like that. Fielding health questions from the nursing staff like, do you smoke or drink alcohol? I told them I didn't smoke, but sometimes drank. When they asked how much, I simply replied, as much as I can. <laughs> <clears throat> The folks visiting me in the hospital laughed audibly, and Brian, Castillo, patted me on my arm as they left. Not the good one. Road fools. After a long wait, the hospital staff decided my injury was serious enough to inject me with a dose of morphine 
that hit me almost as hard as I hit the ground. All the thoughts and recollections of the past two weeks spinning around in my head like a noisy carousel instantly shifted gears and slowed down like a record being played at the wrong speed. All the freewheeling good times were in the rear view now, and as they say, everything has its costs. For this trip, mine would be seven screws and a plate, as well as an extra day on a morphine drip while they FedExed in the parts to put me back together. During the wait, the crew bid me farewell and continued the long drive back to Chicago. I wouldn't be able to join them as they had to keep the show on the road. After it was said and done, I had a line of staples about 20 deep running up my arm, like a railroad track going nowhere. I was by myself in Seattle, with a plane ticket back east. Halfway dope-sick from the morphine trip, I borrowed $20 from the surgeon for a cab ride to SeaTac International Airport. Well, that's it. Um, there's a small section that kind of closes out this story, and it's by Greg Walsh. Uh, it's only about eh, maybe two pages long, but I'm not going to read that either because, well, I just don't have his permission to read it. So uh, I did obviously talk to Crandall before I did this, and he was gracious to allow this to happen. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, the foreword was read by Scott Town, a good friend of mine, and he actually wrote it for the book. So he was uh, he was nice enough to do that, and I really appreciate that too. I don't know. I like doing stuff like this. Uh, like I said, I hope you enjoyed it. It'd be cool to do the other side of the book. This is uh, really a two-part book, one by Crandall and one by Matt Copeland. But again, uh, but again I haven't talked to him, and... Uh, I personally don't know him, and just kind of building up some courage to ask him if if he uh, he'd be cool with me doing that. So I don't know. I'm thinking about it. So maybe this is part one. But anyways, like I said, there were a few more stories in here, and I hope this inspires you to buy the book, even if it's well, if it's even available. I don't know if it's available anymore. If you want to borrow mine, by all means, hit me up. I can send this to you and, you know, send you an extra little little envelope to send it back to me. No big deal, man. Keep it for a few days, keep it for a week, and send her on back. But anyways, that's, that's going to do it for today. A little audiobook version of Bound for Nowhere by Mr. Steve Crandall, fellow BMX rider. And, uh... I don't know, man. I've been looking up to this dude for a long time, and I think for reasons, uh, I guess, more than what are described in this book, such a creative dude, always out there, always doing something, and uh, I feel like he, out of anybody, he tries, I don't know, it's not It's not that he tries to be inspiring to other people, it just kind of happens. Uh, and that's, I think that's pretty cool. So if you're listening to this Crandall, which I doubt you are, but if you are, keep it up. You inspire me. You inspire a lot of freaking people and we love what you're doing, man. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you next time.